Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. You're about to hear a favorite from the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze archive. This show originally aired in 2019. I got that sunshine in my pocket. Got that good soul in my feet. I feel that hot blood in my body when it drops. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. We're in our culinary studio at the Big G Gateway Community College in downtown New Haven. We have five professional kitchens, part of their culinary program that we use, we can use, and it is an amazing thing. Okay, here's what's coming up on this great show, I think. Barbecue, brewery, and a beer garden all in one place in downtown New Haven. I just ate the barbecue and drank the cocktails. Why are there not condos for all of us at this brewery in place? We're going to get to that after. What's this thing we've always had with cookbooks? Why do we love them? My treasured food buddies are here, senior contributors Chris Prosperi, Alex Province, who is in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, everybody. Hey, Faye. Hey, Faye. Hey. Oh, wow. Okay, so we want to get into this thing about cookbooks. Certain ones we haul from place to place. no question. And they look like we have, don't they? The cover on the top is ripped. The pages are all mattered and with food. Food stains inside. Yeah, and sticky and from splattering coming out of the pans. And and Alex, though, there are shelves and shelves, I think, in all of our houses and a lot of people's houses, of all kinds of cookbooks, although they're what we consider classics, and we turn to them over and over again. Then there is that unusual shelf where I don't care what I haul from the classics, this shelf has to go with me. It's like a t-shirt, you know, where you have these t-shirts that represent your personhood, your history. You cannot throw it away. You cannot give it away. You have to have that t-shirt. There are cookbooks like that, and it's usually on one shelf in a person's house. So we thought we would have some fun and talk with you about that. I'd like to invite you, if you too have a cookbook you cannot, no matter what, get rid of, would you talk with us about that on Facebook? You certainly can take a picture of it if you want. Just jump in, Faith Middleton Food Schmooze on Facebook. Chris, do you have one? Oh, I have two. They were the first two cookbooks I ever owned. I got them the same day at the same store, and I used one of them just the other day to make Chicken Marabella. It's the Silver Palette Mm -hmm. cookbook. And I've had it since the day it came out. And then the other one is La Varenne. Do you know that one? Oh, Anne yeah. Lillian. She uh, yeah. has a cooking school in France. Yeah. To this day, I still use it. It's an amazing. You do? Yeah, it's an amazing cookbook. It has simple recipes and techniques in it. And sometimes it's even like a as textbook, a chef, right? Yeah, Chris? it's like a textbook, but it has great step by step pictures. And sometimes you mm-hmm. forget different techniques, even as a chef. And it, I'm telling you, if you can still find that book, it's a treasure. Mine looks like it's yeah. been through a war. 
And like you said, it goes everywhere with me. Okay, I'm going to jump in and say this cookbook, which is called Who's Your Mama? Are You Catholic? And Can You Make a Roux? <laughs> this is... <laughs> this is a family album cookbook, and it was created by Marcel Bienvu, and she's a Cajun home cook in Martinsville, Louisiana, and she worked for the legendary Brennan family. She had her own restaurant, wrote for the New Orleans Times-Picayune. It is the most amazing cookbook. It's published in 1991. It was a gift to me by mail from someone named Luann, who used to own an antique shop in Clinton, Connecticut. One of my favorite recipes in this book is something called jar bread. Mm. I am telling you right <laughs> Make now. Make bread in a jar? Yeah, Chris. This is incredible. It makes eight canning jars of bread. You mix sugar and shortening, then you add beaten eggs and water. You sift together baking powder, baking soda, salt, cinnamon, and ground cloves. Yep. Okay, all of those gettable. Then you add chopped nuts and blueberries. You spray the inside of the eight canning jars with cooking spray, and then you fill each jar halfway with batter. Put those jars on a cookie sheet. You don't have to do anything else. There's no water. <laughs> there's no bain marie there's yeah, no... Yeah. And you bake them for 45 minutes. And when they cool, you're advised to seal them tightly with a sterilized. Nice. Now, this thing is so Have you made cool. Them? Oh, yes. <laughs> but here's my favorite part of this recipe when I first saw it. And I haven't done this, I have to tell you. She said, and if you want, you can get cotton socks and dampen them and then cut the top off and then slip them over uh, the sure. jar. And that moisture helps... Create what a bain marie, you know, that what that water in the pan would do. <laughs> Clean socks, <laughs> yeah, yes. brand, brand new socks. Not, I mean, not how cool used. is that? <laughs> I, I just thought I have to cheesy make this bread. <laughs> That's a great recipe, though. Yeah, I'm, it's at fuch, fuchmousse.org. You have to try it. Okay, Alex, do you have one? Yeah, we have uh, the Lucy Wagner family cookbook. So Lucy Wagner was Matt's grandmother, who was the matriarch and this great baker. So his uncle Wayne Mitzner was able to take all the recipes, put it in this like red cray paper you know, with the like mm. typed out recipes. And it has this one bread that when Wayne makes it, it tastes like real French bread. And it's this no need bread that everything goes in and it just sits mm. for 24 hours or two days or something. Nice. And then <laughs> all of a sudden, like, maybe it's a week. <laughs> <laughs> no socks, though. When it bakes, it has the huge spongy holes and texture like nice. like you know what you're doing. So he did a, a pretty remarkable job collecting all these recipes that would have been lost. But, you know, it's not something that looks good on a bookshelf. Tell it, me it really... again, where is this from? Matt's grandmother is Lucy Wagner. She was a great baker. Yeah. So Matt's uncle collected all the recipes from her and bound them and then gave mm. everyone a copy of, of this family cookbook. I love that. Yeah, I really the do. best. And Jason Sobosinski is here, and everybody knows him from a restaurant in New Haven called Casius and Ordinary and Black Hog Brewery and something else we're going to tell you about shortly that is so amazing that's happened in New Haven. But yeah, I have, so a, lot of, I have a lot of cookbooks. No, I know I you do. I have a lot of cookbooks. Yes, I have those dog-eared ones that I use the most, Cooks Illustrated, but that's my go-to for home cooked meals that I'm doing at home and I need inspiration, I go to, to your boy, 
Jacques Pepin. He's got that 15-minute meal one. Mm. That one's amazing. I know. I love that, that too. Um, I've got a venison sausage cookbook. <gasps> That's it. It's got venison sausage recipes. <laughs> I don't. Wow. I don't find myself having like, lots of venison that often. It's like a teeny tiny <laughs> repertoire at the Sobosinski <laughs> house. Uh, we don't. We, but I, those are the ones I go to read. I mean, I, I have the full set of the modernist cuisine cookbooks that someone bought for me for Christmas, mm-hmm. and I'm they're in a case. Yeah. I don't look at those. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not without an advanced degree. Right. You know, this is you know. like having, I have two big copies of the history of Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't look at those. No, I'm not going to look at those. But the ones that I use most often would, would be my Cook's Illustrated. I mean, those guys. I've got Kenji Lopez-Alt's book that's oh, pretty epic as well. Yeah. yeah okay. Harold McGee. You I know, like the ones that give this? you explanations. Harold McGee. Me yeah. too. What is this thing that we all have about cookbooks? I sometimes think were there people in the cave days painting pictures of how to cook the mastodon, <laughs> you know, or it's something sure. about that over the fire. You mm. bet they were. Well, last Christmas, my mother attempted to do something like what Alex's grandmother put together, I assume, and she asked everyone in the family to put up one recipe. And she put them together into a collection and she made a book and she passed it out. And every year now she's asking us for more recipes mm. and she's adding to that book. So we're going to have our wow. own family cookbook that's growing that's every cool. year, which is pretty okay. cool. I have one that I've always loved because I'm a fan of old TV series. And this book, this is Aunt B's Mayberry Cookbook. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. The Andy Griffith Show. Printed in 1991, and uh, it's based on the spirit of Aunt B, as they would say, on the Andy Griffith Show. But a lot of recipes are from cast members, and pretty much these are all Southern recipes. And one of my favorite recipes is from a cast member, Betty Lynn. It's called, you'll know this right away, Thelma Lou's Oyster Stew. If you saw that series, (laughs) you'll know who Thelma Lou is. And... What's interesting about the recipe in this book is that that cast member who plays Thelma Lou really uses milk instead of cream with oysters. And I like that because cream is so unctuous. Mm. It can overshadow the flavors in the oysters, that saline, subtle thing, and milk doesn't do that. So I kind of like that she did that. These are the cookbooks that I love so much. And I'm not buying new cookbooks anymore for some reason, like new releases, but I go to all these old bookstores and I look for books like that Mm. because of the nostalgia of it, I think, right? Even if you're not going to cook for them, you're just looking through it and brings back memories of different times. So what about the Betty Crocker red and plaid cookbook? Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. I have Fanny one of like three versions <laughs> yeah. of that. Have you ever looked at the different versions over time? I did a paper mm-hmm. on the Fanny Farmer book yeah, over time. Sure. And it was really wild because the serving sizes changed Get bigger. over time. <laughs> and they got bigger. <laughs> sure. The jello molds wild. change color. Yeah. <laughs> like the yeah. amount the amount of meat, the amount of fat, it was like, yeah, yeah, we can eat more now. Here's one which is collectible. When I first seriously started getting into cocktails, I was staying for a couple weeks in Provincetown on the Cape. 
to my amazement, there was this shop that had opened. I'd never seen this before. And it was featuring collectible barware through the decades. And I wanted these silver-rimmed glasses that were from Mad Men. Mm. So all of a sudden, I start looking around the shop, and I fall madly in love with this book. It's called Just Cocktails. And what do I do but buy it? And it's more expensive than the glasses. <laughs> but it's published in 1939. Wow. The typeface, the graphics, incredible. In this book, it makes the case that Americans have always been the best cocktail makers in the world. And here they claim are the grandest recipes to prove it. The outside of this book is made of wood. It has Crazy. copper hinges that are so gorgeous. And inside the graphics, as I said, 70 astonishing. Years old. Yeah. Really, Crazy. just amazing. Then I've got this Joy of Cooking, of course, that is... Oh, that's classic, um, too. ...from the early 40s. I have no yeah. idea where I got it. But here's one. This is from my dear pal, Caroline Morton. One Christmas, she gave me a 1918 copy of How to Set the Table for Every Occasion, and it is printed on linen. When I got to this, I couldn't believe it. This is called... Various ways of announcing a meal. It says here, a meal is always announced to the hostess or the head of the family. Except in rare cases, the woman at the head of the family is the mistress, and all domestic <laughs> orders are given to her and taken from her. In announcing a meal, the maid appears at the door of the room and stands there till she is recognized by her mistress when she says, Dinner is served or luncheon is served. Sometimes in a country place, <laughs> I can't even do this, where the family or guests may be in various parts of the house, <laughs> what they're doing, wow. or on the galleries outside, a gong is used. And then it says at the very bottom, two minutes before announcing the meal, the water glasses should be filled with water that has been iced. The glasses should be two-thirds full of water, not more. Also, butter form should be placed on the bread and butter plate. It's very Downton Abbey. It's, yeah, it's from it? a different time. Well, well also, we that triangle it's that basically you, white people. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. no, seriously. <laughs> no, seriously. The building I'm in now is from 1906, mm. and one of the rooms was their main dining room. And you could totally see that scene happening in that house in 1919. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, so I'm inviting you to tell me, us, on Facebook, if you have a special, funny, unusual cookbook that means a lot, a church recipe collection, a classic from long ago. Let us know. Take a picture of it if you want with your phone. I'm at Faith Middleton Food Schmooze on Facebook, and we're looking forward to hearing from you. Oh, wait till you hear about this place that is opened in New Haven. No matter where you live, it's right off the exit on the highway, and I'm telling you, it's unbelievable. More mouthwatering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. I hope you'll make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. We're online now at foodschmooze.org, and we'll be right back. Not just flavor in my food, I want some flavor in my life. Your tears for my garlic, your sugar for my spice. Simmer, bake, and boil it, feed me for my health. Don't want a fast food cook, I want a gourmet chef. I'm a hungry woman, a 
listening to a rebroadcast of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. This show originally aired in 2019. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread. Beans and cornbread had a fight. Beans knocked cornbread out of sight. Cornbread said, now that's all right. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. I'm Faith Middleton. You can sign up for our free podcast, which is a copy of the show, and it will arrive in your inbox. If you've never done it before, go to foodschmooze.org. I'm with my treasured food buddies. We have Chris Prosperi, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut, wine broker Alex Province, and our special guest, Jason Sobosinski of Omo, which is a farm-to-table restaurant in New Haven where bagels will bring you to your knees. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, but that's going to bring you to your knees. Jamie the Bear McDonald. We're calling Jason Jason the Bobcat. So <laughs> Jamie the Bear McDonald and um, Conrad, or Rad Maurice, who is the cocktail person for this new situation that we have in New Haven. It's called Bear's Smokehouse at the Stack. The Stack is a kind of point for a neighborhood in New Haven, and it's right off exit six. You come off the exit and you take a right. I am telling you, it is unbelievable. We just had it on the show, but I've had it many times before. It's astonishing. They have a brewery and they have a beer garden. And this is all on James Street, technically, in New Haven. Welcome, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So here's what I want to know. If you're doing a style of barbecue, what kind is it, Bear? It's a combination of Kansas City, Texas... Carolinas, uh, a little bit of international flavors in there. Uh, you know, our, our <laughs> Connecticut. Are, our, our I don't know what all that means, but it means it's just it's a. I've traveled all over, all around the world, and I kind these of, are dark sauces. Yeah, yeah, pick, like, pick stuff from each place that oh, I thought was the best, and kind of integrate it, it into is one, one concept. Amazing. If you had just the barbecue on a plate, even push the sauces to the side. Absolutely amazing. So if you're a paleo eater. But you know what I was thinking when you were asking to define it, it's defined already now in Connecticut. It's Bears yeah. Barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not Kansas City, it's not Texan, it's not this, it's not it's yeah, like he said, a combination of what he likes and what he's seen. We just know it now as Bears Barbecue. Could it get better? Because Jason is about to open a huge beer garden in this place with those long tables. But when I was in Munich, I did this, and it was so astonishing. We'd get steins of beer. Do you have steins, We Jason? have steins, yeah. We've got 32-ounce steins. We've got 16 taps. You can okay. load pretty much anything into a stein. We're, we're, Is we're kind of limiting. from all over Connecticut? Or? So we got, we've got beer from all over Connecticut, and we've got a bunch of beer from Germany. Because this is, we are trying to go for that German beer concept and good old German pilsners really go well with barbecue. 
clean, refreshing, loaded up on a big stein, sit down, get a pile of brisket, tuck in. So, Bear, I'm just an admirer of yours in terms of the quality of meat that you get. How long do you cook this stuff for? It depends. So, like, say, like the beef, whether it's brisket or beef ribs, those go for about, say, 15 to 18 hours. If you're a barbecue person as I am, when I say these words, like me, you too are going to fall to your knees. Burnt ends. (laughs) (laughs) Burnt ends are a traditional Kansas City item. If you want to talk about Kansas City barbecue, it's burnt ends. That's where they originated from. What does that mean? It's a part of the brisket. It's the deckle of the brisket. So so you have a 14-pound brisket. You have a part on it that is a little bit more, I'll call it, well-marbled. It's a lot of flavor in there. But that's only about two pounds of that whole whole entire brisket. And say somewhere like in Texas, they would just slice that and they call it fatty brisket. Yeah. Um, which is <laughs> fantastic. But like the name. in Kansas City, mm-hmm. what we do is you cut that, the, we call it the point. We cut the point off. You season it some more. You smoke it some more. You cube it up. Get let it get a little crusty, Heaven. so it's we call them like meat candy. It's like a meat M and M, so it's a little bit crusty on the outside. It's nice and soft on the inside. Put that on his meat mac candy. and cheese, Faith, and <laughs> it's, yes, exactly. It's, yeah, it, that's it. Just you're you're done. So, so, so yeah. just before the show, they brought us sweet potatoes and Aye. broccoli, the smoked turkey, which oh, was heaven. astonishing, Yum. and the brisket. So Jason Sobosinski, I know you're going to be doing all these different beers there that you're making at Black Hog Brewery in Oxford, Connecticut, and you're known for that. I want to hear about this concept from the two of you about this idea of the beer garden. So the, the history of the beer gardens where the German brewers would have to take beer out into the forest and they would bury the beer in the forest because the trees would provide shade and so it would be like a cellaring. It would be a cooler spot. And they would dig the beer up when it was ready, when it was fermented out. And then they would think to themselves, well, why do we have to carry it all the way back into the city? Let's just drink it here. So they had people come out and they would dig it up and have a really? beer garden. And so it's like a treasure. Exactly. Exactly. You've planted the beer and now you're harvesting it and you're drinking it. And so we we have this wow. amazing outdoor space. It's got an outdoor container bar, so it's a shipping container that's been converted into a bar. This is really wild. And we've got these really awesome long tables. They were built by a, a New Haven local blacksmith. And they're absolutely beautiful. And the atmosphere is going to be really chill and fun. When I was in Munich a thousand years ago, I was in college. The thing I remember most about being there was that sense of community at those big, long tables. Everyone was just having the most fun. And I remember hooking up with a whole group of people, and they were older, and they said, we're going to teach you a song. And it was... Honestly, here I am all these years later. Vo Lucerne, Ovoa, Kitsur, Odie, Cuckoo, Odie, Cuckoo. And then it went on from there. I think Kevin Chase sang that song. Faith, when we open the beer garden, you have to come down. She's the opening. You have to come down and you have to start a chorus. And everyone will be smacking their steins together and you will run the song. So just amazing, amazing fun in that place. So I'm excited to see that there's going to be a beer garden. It's going to be awesome. really excited. And then all the 
this barbecue. It's a match made in heaven. Okay, let me switch over quickly for a second to Conrad. I call you Rad. Rad Manier. You've got these big, big cans. What goes in these? So we actually give the opportunity to our guests to take beers home. How about uh, getting script. takeout and grabbing one of those, huh? Exactly. No, seriously. Hello. <laughs> it's it's pretty two. fun because we, we seal the can right yeah. in front of you. And yeah. it's, it's a pretty cool process of watching yeah. the can spin. Yeah. The two wheels come in and just crimp the can, seal right? the crimp over, yeah. and it's wild. And then yeah. and then it's sealed. It's, it's good. You take it home. You can throw it in your fridge. When you wow. crack it, it's a pts. So you know, Jamie or Bear, <laughs> that we have in New Haven for a long time been desperately wanting you to come to New, to New Haven <laughs> and now we're from here. the whole Hartford area, <laughs> and, and you are here. We have Jason. You know, we think, <laughs> we think in yeah, Hartford, you don't have Jason. We have Jason. <laughs> Jason. Hey, but you have, you have Jamie the Bear. And then we think, oh, what if we could put these two together? And here it is. I think he's being modest because, honestly, Bears is, is his institution in Connecticut. It's not just the barbecue. He's part of the restaurant community. And he gives back so much to the communities yeah. that he's in. In Hartford, yeah. he's done so much as well. I know, yes. you know, we live part-time in Hartford, and people love Jamie there. I mean, he's done so, so much. He's really part of the community, and it's taken a lot of chances and has really changed stuff. Hey, uh, really and Alex, work. I think in reference to what you're saying, Jamie's philosophy has been to pay every single person in the restaurant at least $15 an hour, wow. and that is... A step toward making a middle class. I was so touched when I heard that you did that. So good for you. Yeah, no, it's it's just our way to give back to our employees. That without them, it's like profit sharing. Yeah, right? without them, we wouldn't be where we are. And it so, works for you, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We've seen you know increased efficiencies. You, you expect them you know, to work hard, though. Yeah, right? no, yeah, it's, oh, yeah, it's not for nothing. You know, we they work very very hard, but at the end of the day, you know, is it a living wage? No, it's not quite there yet, but. Mm. It's a, a lot better than the say normal, you know, normal restaurant work. Yeah. It makes you feel good eating there because you know he does so good for the communities that he's in. Mm. Maybe that's why it tastes so good. There's yeah, a lot the of good karma in really that barbecue good, sauce. It's good for your soul. Yeah. Yeah. All the good love for your soul, right? You, <laughs> or and you it could feel just it. be good barbecue, though. This is an amazing addition to the New Haven community. Thank you both so much. Thank Thanks, all Faith. three no, thank of you. you. Yeah, thank, thank you, guys. You. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We love the local. Please support your local food growers and food makers. If you want an on-demand podcast of the Food Schmooze Party every week and to find all of our recommendations, go to foodschmooze.org and we'll be right back. What's my problem? You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. This show originally aired in 2019. Want me to love you in moderation? Do I look moderate to you? Sip it slowly and pay attention. I just have to see it through. You got me looking.
This is the Food Schmooze Party offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York, including Westchester County, the east end of Long Island, the Hamptons, of course. The senior producer is Robin Doyen Aiken, and you can get the podcast and all of our curated recommendations always online at foodschmooze.org. I'm with my treasured food buddies, Chris Prosperi, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut, wine broker Alex Province, and our special guest, Sarah Newland of the Newland Foundation, who knows where to eat in New York City. So here's the question, because I'm excited about this interview. Do you live with any anxiety about your food choices? Do you sort of love junk food and you've been shamed for it? Chris is raising his hand. <laughs> like, do you, or you maybe you're somebody who preaches the gospel of healthy choices. No matter where you are on this, if you're not anxious, about what you're choosing, you're the exception. We read the news, we talk to friends, and if we can afford to, we worry about, let's see, mercury in fish, hormones in meat, whether sugar will cause autism, whether our cooking vessels cause cancer or Alzheimer's, that food not grown locally is increasing global warming. We even worry now about cooking food at all because it supposedly ruins the nutrients. (laughs) That's just for starters. This book just might ease your anxiety. Dr. Carroll, Dr. Aaron Carroll, looks at the best science from his perspective and offers answers to important questions. Is diet soda really bad for you or the kids? Is organic more healthful and worth the money? What about eggs? Science goes back and forth. What about coffee? What about alcohol? Butter? Meat versus fish? GMOs? MSG? To get at the answers, which studies should we believe and why? That's the question, isn't it? Because there's a study coming out all the time. Six months later, another academic study is going to come out that completely reverses the first study. This is what Dr. Carroll says in this book too, Sarah. I've read this book twice. That's how interesting (laughs) it is. Okay. Here's the beauty part about what our guest, Dr. Carroll, has done. Like his colleagues, including best-selling author Nina Teicholz, who does the introduction for the Bad Food Bible, as this is called, Dr. Carroll decided to study the studies. He understands what most of us don't. What makes a study the gold standard of studies? And how often so many media outlets, we jump on sexy-sounding studies because it's interesting, Provocative. It makes news. The problem is that it wasn't necessarily a very good study. Yet we hear about that study over and over and we start making choices. But think about this. We became fatter during the high-carb, low-fat era. How did that happen? We were convinced by experts that it was the smart way to eat. The way this works together at the intersections of research, media, government, the corporate world, all of this creates a misleading system 
unless you know where and how to look for what's real. There's no question our diabetes, heart disease, and obesity numbers are bad. So what choices are we really supposed to make? That's what we're going to do with Dr. Aaron Carroll. He is professor of pediatrics and the director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research at Indiana University School of Medicine. He's had three previous books, and this one, The Bad Food Bible, How and Why to Eat Sinfully. (laughs) You think, really, can a medical doctor (laughs) saying this? Let me just say, it's really fascinating. Welcome to the Fuchmoose. Thank you for having me. You must be on Social Security by now. That went on so long. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite yet, no. It's always nice when people want to talk about it. Great. <laughs> so what happened to you that made you want to write this book that looks at the gold standard of studies? The book originated out of a number of columns that I was writing. For the My Times? At the New York Times, exactly, is that I sort of cover health research, health policy, and how we can bring data and evidence to make better decisions about what we do about health in general. Over time, I started to notice that when I wrote about food, those were the columns that were the most popular, and they were the ones that were actually the most helpful to even what I was doing with my own life. Did you get the most pushback from those two? Sometimes. It depends what you're talking about. So I think the first one I wrote was about coffee, and uh the, the gist of it was that, like you were saying in your introduction, you know, you read a bad study, then you read a good study. Your coffee's terrible for you, and then and we just don't know the answer. And so I said, well, look, uh, let me go back, and I will review the literature, and I will see what I could find. Shockingly, there has been an enormous amount of research on coffee, more than almost any other drug that you could take, and the vast majority of it was really in the positive direction, that if you took an honest holistic look at the evidence that we have for coffee, it is unequivocally leaning towards positive. It's definitely not negative. And we're told all the time, you need to worry about coffee. You're going to get addicted to coffee. It's a vice. It's so bad for you. There's no (laughs) evidence for that at all. Uh And when we published that, I mean, people... People love that one. Um, but of course, when I wrote about artificial sweeteners, which is another thing you brought up, that inspired more hatred than almost anything else I've ever Artificial people sweeteners. hate diet soda. I did not realize this. There were organizations that were calling for my license to be taken away. Somebody even questioned whether or not I should have my children taken away from me. Um, because wow. I let them drink diet soda every once in a while. So people hold really passionate well, views about Wait a minute now. So tell me about diet soda. What's the bottom line on that? Of course, you could live a life where you have none of this stuff. You could drink only water for the rest of your life. But given <laughs> that people are going to drink other things, I think the real question that we are concerned about is what's better or worse, a sugar drink or a diet drink? And there's an unequivocal evidence that sugar drinks are bad for us. They're bad for your teeth. They're bad for your health. Added sugars are one of those few things where there's almost no positive literature whatsoever. But when it comes to artificial sweeteners, the studies, again, the good studies are unequivocally pointing to the fact that it's almost impossible for us to pick up a danger. Even the original studies that were done on saccharin and rats back in the 60s and 70s, they would do study after study after study and find nothing. Finally, they did one study where they fed rats an enormous amount of saccharin, like, you know, horse-level doses. And then they fed the children of those rats enormous amounts of saccharin. And some of those rats had an increased risk of bladder cancer. And this is like one out of 30 to 60 studies. And based on that, all the warnings went up. Well, of course, 
Humans don't really get bladder cancer that much. It's rats get bladder cancer. It turns out if you give them a lot of vitamin C, they'll get bladder cancer. And so when they did further careful studies, the dangers were never picked up in humans. The warnings are all gone. And now it's wow. moved on to the new panic du jour, whether it be aspartame or another one. But we have huge randomized control trials, and if we have nothing else... Human beings drink tons of this stuff. If they were truly harmful, and the idea that you're going to get massive amounts of brain cancer, which is often what people worry about with aspartame, we'd be picking it up. We aren't. Again, I'm forced to question, if you had to choose, I'd take diet soda any day of the week. So I'm going to ask you that one subtle thing that many people talk about, I've even talked about it myself, where they say, oh, but if you're someone who's not allowed to have sugar, say, prediabetes or diabetes, it's still not good to have diet soda because it's fooling your body. And your body then says, I'm into sugar. So you're going to have a harder time staying away from sugar. Is there any truth to that? So I'm going to push back on that because I want us to really think through the science on that one. Mm. So your body reacts to glucose. You know, fruit goes broken into glucose and the pancreas, which releases insulin, doesn't know that it's sweet. It just knows that there's glucose around. Artificial sweeteners are an entirely different molecule. If we could fool our brains <laughs> Isn't into best? thinking that we've had sugar and that we should re- release insulin, then the opposite should be true. If we take really bad food for us but make it taste like vegetables or something terrible, we would never gain weight because our body would be fooled into thinking that we were consuming you know, healthy food. That's not how it works. It all gets broken down into molecules which are recognized that have nothing to do with taste. And so a lot of those studies Studies which show that people mm-hmm. who, who drink diet soda are more likely to be overweight and then the people say, oh, it must be tricking our body. Those are almost entirely associations. And what we're seeing is that okay. two things. One, people who are overweight tend to drink more diet soda. That's the causal pathway. It's not that the diet soda leads to overweight. It's that often overweight leads to us trying to make diet choices in those beverages, and we just see the study with an association, and we start making links that just aren't there. This is going to be the most replayed podcast in all of the (laughs) Portsmouth's history. Okay, um, let me just say, this is Dr. Aaron Carroll. He teaches medical students, uh, writes for the New York Times, does a column. He does the Upshot column. I've read him many times, and that's how I got to this book, The Bad Food Bible. Meat. Let's talk about meat. Look, maybe somebody feels better not having meat or feels noble or there's a reason you can't have meat. What's the bottom line on meat? Let me you know, reiterate what you just said to start off, where if people don't want to eat meat for ethical reasons or for mm-hmm. climate science, fine. I have no issue with that whatsoever. If you don't like meat, I'm not trying to convince people to eat meat. My mission is to remove a lot of the fear that people have. And there are many, many columns that you can read. In fact, my original meat column was spurred because I think it was Dean Ornish wrote an op-ed in the New York Times arguing that eating meat significantly increases your chance of dying. So let's start with that specific study that he was citing. Pretty that serious. That was a study that looked in, yeah, that, that study looked at basically a whole bunch of people and said, how many servings with an S of red meat are you eating a day? Yeah. Um, and then said the people that were eating at the high end had a higher risk of death at the low end. But that was only if you looked at the people who were younger than 65. If you looked at the people over 65, the opposite was, in fact, the whole study was negative. If you globally looked at everybody in the study, no association. But if you start cherry-picking, below 65, slightly higher risk of death. But above 65, slightly lower risk of death. Of course, he wasn't yes. arguing that old okay. people should eat more meat. 
But nobody does that. They only cherry pick the data that supports their argument. Uh-huh. Plus, yeah. if you're eating servings with an S of red meat a day, okay, cut back a little bit. But most of us are worried that, you know, if you have the occasional burger or steak that you're going to keel over dead, there's no science or truth <laughs> behind that at all. Even the WHO, which truly can never find something doesn't cause cancer, and I say that almost literally. <laughs> thousand substances that they've studied, one, they've said this does not cause cancer. Everything else causes cancer or might cause cancer or it's a possible risk of cancer. Well, but with meat, it wasn't even red meat, it was processed red meat, and the number that everybody knows is it, is it increases your risk of colon cancer by 18%. That's a lifetime risk. When we say 18%, which sounds scary, it has to be translated into an absolute risk, and you can find an absolute risk. So if I go to the NIH's website and I plug in all my risk factors for colon cancer, and you have to be 50, so let's pretend I'm 50, it turns out that my lifetime risk of colon cancer with my diet and everything else I eat, let's just say for the sake of argument, it's like 2.5%. If I committed today to eating an extra serving, three pieces of bacon every day for the rest of my life, and I'm not going to do that. But even if I said every day forever, another three pieces of bacon, my overall lifetime risk of colon cancer might go from like 2.5% to like 2.8%. How would your kidneys be? Well, probably fine. Because again, our body, we've two of them and they're not overworked. And it would be totally fine absorbing that, that little bit of extra sodium. But the, the point of the matter is that that's an incredibly low overall change for what many would perceive to be an enormous benefit. If I take a thousand people and I give them all three pieces of extra bacon a day, maybe like one or two of them might get colon cancer over a lifetime. That's a very low-risk thing, and yet you read the news, you see the 18%, and you get all these people panicking every day, and they're worried about eating the occasional serving of red meat, not an extra serving every day for the rest of their lives. So a lot of this is just overblown. Who wants to propose right now to Dr. Aaron Carroll? Does anybody want to propose (laughs) to him? I I do. I'd like to be first in line. Um, The Bad Food Bible, he's the author of this. It's amazing. How and why do eat sinfully. He's a medical school doc. Okay, here we are. Alcohol. Uh, (laughs) Here we go. I thought, oh, this is going to be one area where you do kind of have to watch out, right? Well, okay, let's, again, let's let's (laughs) acknowledge the elephant in the room and start. Alcoholism is terrible. Alcohol abuse is terrible. People who drink too much alcohol are absolutely impacting their, their health in a negative way. But the people who are truly drinking too much comprise, even at a rough estimate, let's say less than 10% of the population. You know, mm-hmm. again, most of us are worried that the occasional drink is going to sink us in some way. And if you read the news, you'd agree because, I mean, even I think within the last year or two, there have been studies saying there is no safe level of alcohol, even one drink mm-hmm. a day. Especially for women. Way. Yes. So you have to cherry pick the evidence because the dangers that show up from alcohol other than, of course, alcoholism again, are most often cancer. But if you look globally at the risk of cancer, for many, many cancers, the absolute risk changes are very, very small. And you have to get up to the danger zones, which is more than one drink a day, which is more than, on average, seven drinks a week for a woman, 14 drinks for a man, to get above that. Most of these risks are relative risks. And again, what's really odd is, is when you look at heart disease, 
and the literature, there isn't this negative connotation. If anything, there's a positive association for reducing heart disease. And given that heart disease is the number one killer of men and women, globally, these risks with alcohol just aren't there. Again, I have to caution for, you know, social drinking, safe drinking, not alcoholism, not alcohol abuse, but the studies, yes, but the studies that find the damage are often in huge amounts. They're often studies that are associations, not necessarily causal, and there have been some randomized controlled trials, which of course are the best studies, that look at alcohol and some risk factors, and again, they lean towards a positive association. Like coffee, I think the take-home message shouldn't be, go out and drink, it's good for your health. The take-home message should be, we don't really see these dangers that everybody's worried about at safe levels. If you get joy out of the occasional cocktail, that's great, because joy is the benefit. Yay. Love him. Bring <laughs> on the line. What about alcohol with saccharin? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I don't think the study's been done, but it'd yeah. probably be fine. Yeah, Jack and Diet Coke. I always say that our bodies can handle a little bit of everything, right? Sure. I mean, we're yeah. tougher than we say we are. I have no interest in a little bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> but aren't there, yeah. honestly, aren't there times in your life where you're going to have two pieces of cake, three brownies, <laughs> three cocktails. Okay. It's just going to happen on certain occasions. So Saturdays. I wrote a column on one Thanksgiving where I was like, I'm amazed every year when we see those articles about how many calories in the Thanksgiving meal. And I'm always like, who cares? That's one day yeah. a year. It's like, worry about the other 364. <laughs> it's the other, you know, steady life choices that you make, yeah. not the occasional I'm going to let it go. What about yeah. pregnant women, Dr. Carolyn, alcohol? The evidence is not nearly as solid as we would like. That's part of the problem. It does appear that there is an association between alcohol consumption at, at high levels or at levels that we just don't know what the number is on at certain points in pregnancy that are associated with bad outcomes. And because of that, people rationally say, since we don't know the level and we don't know the date, we're better off just saying it's better for women not to drink during pregnancy. And that is totally rational. The problem is that we've now taken that to be that like, okay, well then if you just touch alcohol at any point during pregnancy, you're significantly increasing the risk. That's not known. And there are certainly parts of the world where women have the occasional cocktail or glass of wine and don't see increases in their, their problems. There have been studies where actually if you talk to obstetricians and ask, what do you tell your patients, the vast majority of them say, absolutely, I tell them never to drink alcohol. And you say, well, how confident are you in the evidence that this is true? And they're like, oh, I'm not confident at all. Because mm. they know this is a nuanced, problematic thing, but we just don't do nuance in health very well. Mm. Very you know, I was rational. just thinking about a study I just read, and these are attorneys who are representing women who are pregnant and being arrested in different parts of the United States for doing something like tripping, they're pregnant, and the women end up getting arrested for endangering the fetus. I'm literally amazed you brought this up because a study was published in PLOS One which basically looked at how alcohol policies specifically relating to drinking during pregnancy have affected or being associated with health outcomes in babies because a lot of these policies are doing exactly what you're saying. They're almost criminalizing drinking while you're pregnant. And what that turns out to have done is had the opposite effect that we'd like. It's actually associated with increased preterm birth and more low birth weight babies, probably because women get panicked that they're going to get in trouble and don't go to the doctor and don't get prenatal care because they're driven underground by these kinds of laws and policies. 
And Jeez. so if we make people fear and we do it without good evidence, we often wind up with policies that cause more harm than good. Here's the thing I've wrestled with uh, pretty much all my adult life, and that's organic versus not organic. Doctors and people will say to you, you've got to eat more vegetables, much better to eat more vegetables. And I think, but there's all this poison on them. How can that be good for me? What does this all mean? And so I read with the greatest interest your chapter on organic. Can you give us a bottom line on that? Yeah, I, this chapter came out in an argument that I had with my wife. It was Thanksgiving, and I had bought all the stuff that she asked me to in the list. And when she saw that the gravy that I bought for the turkey was not organic gravy. She got very angry. And I was like, you can't possibly think that gravy is healthy if it's organic. It's gravy. Like, that's not, there's no way it makes a difference. It's not a thing. If you like organic food because you think that it tastes better, I'm great with that. I mean, you know, homegrown vegetables are often amazing, and the local produced food can be amazingly tasty, so that's great. But if you're under the illusion that it's healthier or that it's somehow safer, and the idea that it has less harmful stuff in it, there's no evidence for that at all. There have been systematic reviews, which, again, are studies of studies, gathering all of the evidence, I mean hundreds of studies that look at organic food and its relationship to both safety, to nutrients, whether or not it contains more minerals or vegetables, whether it contains better amounts of protein or not, and whether or not it contains more pesticides. And the evidence is overwhelmingly in that it just doesn't make a difference. We know we need... Americans, we'd rather them eat more fruits and vegetables. And the idea that we are going to quibble with people as to whether they're eating the right fruits and vegetables, instead of celebrating that they're eating any fruits and vegetables, is missing the game entirely. Rule number five, use salt and fats, including butter and oil, as needed in food preparation. I'm just saying. Yes, please. Okay. Where are the pom-poms? Okay. Hey, Dr. Carroll, you're just phenomenal, and the book is fascinating. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. Anytime. Dr. Aaron Carroll, author of The Bad Food Bible, How and Why to Eat Sinfully. For our podcast, you know what to do. Foodschmooze.org and never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton.